leaders of seven nations that grew rich off of slavery and colonialism gathered in the United Kingdom last weekend to congratulate themselves on their quote-unquote democratic values. We'll discuss the G7 summit, the fight against police brutality and the suppression of the movement against racism, the latest attacks on Representative Ilhan Omar, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's June 15th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And once you subscribe, register for our patrons-only seminar with Brian Becker tomorrow, Wednesday, May 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Supporters can ask Brian questions beforehand and live on the seminar. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, I mentioned in the intro the seven nations who met this weekend who, in fact, did grow rich off of slavery and colonialism. Let's start there. I think it's important to mention Joe Biden's first overseas trip, first at the so-called G7, the Group of Seven Nations. That took place in the UK. There were massive protests, mainly focused about the environment, got very, very little media coverage, the mass protested. And then he was on to Brussels for the meeting with NATO. And then, of course, he will be meeting with Vladimir Putin and others. But this was a big trip for Biden, as he kept telling everyone who would listen, America's back, meaning the so-called disruptive influence of Donald Trump on U.S. foreign policy and U.S. alliances with NATO, also known as the junior partners of U.S. imperialism. Biden was promising that those stormy seas are behind us, that there's going to be a new period of stability. And I want to talk a little bit about the media coverage that accompanied Biden. You know, there is that famous quote from Malcolm X. It goes like this. If you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. That was Malcolm X. People should always remember that because Malcolm X was spot on with his point. If we read the media coverage, I'm looking at the Washington Post. Listen to this. President Biden is asking leaders of other wealthy democracies to form a united front against China's use of forced labor, arguing Saturday that a stronger line is a moral and practical imperative. So here it is. President Biden is asking the other wealthy democracies, that would be the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, Italy, and Canada, to stand together against forced labor. 
the irony of this statement could not be greater. All of those countries became wealthy. I mean, democracy is their own branding. They became very wealthy, meaning the ruling classes, the capitalists in those countries became very wealthy, specifically based on their imposition of forced labor on the people of the world. I mean, what is colonialism other than the forced labor of the subjugated people? What is the institution of slavery other than the forced labor of people? Even in the U.S. Constitution, the 13th Amendment, when the U.S. finally technically, legally, formally ended slavery at the end of the Civil War, made sure to maintain a clause that allowed slavery to continue. The 13th Amendment allows that for incarcerated people who have been convicted of a crime. But when we think about who these countries are and what they did and the fact that they can posture as the, quote, wealthy democracies without mentioning that they were the enforcers of the system that was the opposite of democracy for the people of the world, and that they became wealthy premised on the forced labor of the people of the world, you would think that it might occur to some journalist to talk about that, like to tell the real story, instead of simply being stenographers for imperialism. But of course, those reporters know that if they were to write that, not only would it not see the light of day, not only would it not be published, printed, or broadcast, they would also lose their jobs. So they dutifully, even though they know the facts, self-censor. I want to go over a little bit of the record of these wealthy democracies. But before we do that, Nicole, I was also struck by the fact that Biden, in his first foray overseas, made one of those Biden-esque statements. You know, he has this history of saying the same things over and over and over again. He said, quote, NATO, this is when he got to Brussels, NATO is critically important for U.S. interests in and of itself. If there weren't one, we'd have to invent one. I thought that was kind of a funny quip on the part of Biden because the U.S. actually did invent NATO. The U.S. created this military alliance under the leadership of the United States in 1949 to roll back communism and socialism and to clash with, and, and they hoped to defeat the Soviet Union. But I, when I listened to it, I thought, wow, this is, I've heard this before. We actually have a clip from Joe Biden when he was, right before he ran for president the first time when he was speaking in the U.S. Senate, where he used the same phrase, but this time about Israel. Let's play that. If we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. I don't think Biden is supposed to talk like that. U.S. politicians aren't supposed to talk about Israel simply as an investment, as an extension of American power in this resource-rich area called the Middle East. But again, this is Biden. He has this kind of circular points of articulation. If Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. If NATO didn't exist, we'd have to invent it, even though the U.S. did invent it. Because, of course, NATO, like the United States, is an extension of American power. That's why the U.S. 
did invent NATO. That's why the U.S. was, Harry Truman was the first head of state to recognize the state of Israel on May 15th or the evening of May 14th, uh, 1948, as a new state. But again, I want to go over the history. Uh, These countries that are now telling China, don't you dare use forced labor. And there's no evidence indicating that China is, in fact, using forced labor uh, with the Uyghurs. There's no indication, really. There's no evidence. There's no hard facts that China is setting up a system of forced labor and slavery. But who are these people? Of the almost 200 current members of the United Nations, the British government has at some point in its history invaded and established a military presence in 171 of them. By 1913, the British Empire held sway over 412 million people. That's 23% of the world's population at that time. Britain mainly dominated China, starting with the Opium Wars in 1839. Britain bombed Chinese cities and ports and seized control of Hong Kong. That's how it became a British territory as punishment for the Chinese not wanting to import opium, which led to mass drug addiction in China, which is the thing they feared. But the British insisted that they take the opium because the British needed to use it to fund the British bourgeoisie's colonial domination over the colony of India. So British imperialism and colonialism was, in fact, the opposite of democracy for the people it dominated. It grew rich from forced labor. And the same is true, as I mentioned, for the U.S. capitalist class. I mean, millions of kidnapped African people and their descendants had to work, and they worked without pay. And on the basis of the capitalists in America being able to maintain a shackled and chained workforce, such that all of the surplus created by the labor of enslaved people became part and parcel of the wealth of the American capitalist class, the same class that Joe Biden is representing. The U.S. invaded Mexico. It stole half of Mexico in 1848. It invaded Hawaii. It invaded Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, Haiti. It seized these lands and their resources by force and became wealthy from their forced labor. Since 1945, when U.S. capitalism replaced Britain as the dominant empire, the U.S. has militarily intervened in scores of countries. Well, let's go to Japan, another part of the G7 with their moral imperatives. Japan's ruling class became ever richer over the colonization of Taiwan and later in Korea in 1905. They grew rich from the importation of forced Korean labor, slave labor, to Japan. They grew rich by the seizure of China in 1937, where they committed the most egregious war crimes and crimes against humanity. By 1943, Japanese colonial conquests accounted for more than 20% of the world's population, at that time 460 million people. French colonialism, another one of the much-vaunted G7 moralizers, it too had its wealth based on the forced labor of the people France militarily conquered. 
from the enslaved people of Haiti to Algeria to the Ivory Coast to all of the other countries of West Africa to Lebanon and Syria. The French bourgeoisie became rich from the forced labor of their colonial subjects and slaves. In 1884, these same countries gathered together in Berlin and they took the map of Africa, they drew it up. They took the map of Africa, drew it up, and decided what colonial power would take which part of Africa. And between 1884 and 1902, within a matter of 18 years, every part of Africa, with the exception of Ethiopia, was taken over by European colonialism and was subject to imperialist governance. All aspects of African self-governance disappeared in those 18 years. So when we hear Joe Biden and the Washington Post and the CNN and the New York Times sort of spoon feed the American people with these notions that the G7 are just the wealthiest democracies, we have to keep this history in mind. If anything, the G7 should be abolished. I mean, why does it exist? I mean, there's the United Nations Security Council that includes Russia and China. The G7 exists because the U.S. wants to exclude China and Russia. Or what about the G20? Why have a G7 with the former colonizers and enslavers of the world when there's the G20, which would include other countries, would include Russia, would include South Africa, include Turkey, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea. I mean, the G7 is a stain on humanity and should be abolished. Anyway, Nicole, when you think about the U.S. mounting the podium and talking about the moral imperative against forced labor and defending the rights of national minorities, and then we think what's going on in this country and the epic struggle that's being waged and has been waged for so long against racism and before it racism and apartheid and before it apartheid, the enslavement of African people. And right now, as Biden is in Brussels or before that in Britain, the struggle is raging. There was another killing, a racist killing in Minneapolis Sunday night as people are in the streets. Of course, Minneapolis, the site of where George Floyd was killed just one year ago. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good way to talk about it because you know, the United States, like so many other countries, gets on its high horse when there's actually, you know, huge problems here in the United States. And I think the revolt against racism over the last year and a little bit more than a year has shown that so clearly. On Sunday night in Minneapolis, a woman was killed and three people were injured when a car rammed straight into a group of protesters, anti-racist protesters, yet again in a Minneapolis neighborhood. This woman was killed pronounced dead at the hospital after the crash. And people were out who were protesting another black man who'd been shot by police in and around Minneapolis. He was shot and killed by federal police, which we can talk a little bit about the differences there, but people were out there protesting. His name was Winston Smith Jr. He was a 32-year-old black father of three. And of course, the police were in their lying game and have been in the, over the past month. But we're seeing there's so many protests where we've seen this happen. In fact, an article that was put out, it's already outdated. It was almost a year ago, last July 2020, just between 
when George Floyd was killed a year and a couple months ago, and last July, so that was only a couple months time, cars had hit demonstrators 104 times, 104 times. And this is yet another one of those murders that happened last night using a car um, where, again, a woman was killed and three people were injured. But, you know, it's not just Minneapolis that this is happening in. This has been happening all over the country. I think the biggest or like first really notable case was in Charlottesville a few years ago. But, you know, since the revolt against racism and the, you know, people coming out, millions of people coming out in the street last summer, these sorts of murders have only increased and these sorts of attacks, you know, attacks on anti-racist protesters have increased. And what's more, I'm sure listeners have seen some of this happening, but there's actually 45 states now that are considering 226 different bills that are against protesters. So some of these would make it quite literally legal to drive your car if you feel for some reason threatened to drive your car into protesters, into protesters in the street, exercising their First Amendment. It would make it legal in some state to drive your car into protesters. Exactly what happened Sunday night in Minneapolis. 34 bills have been enacted, 59 are pending. So this is all over the country. Again, 45 of 50 states have considered these bills. What you're talking about just reminds me of the fact that in addition to, you know, Joe Biden going on the international stage, you know, spouting about forced slavery or forced labor in other countries, this country hasn't even dealt with its own history in terms of not even wanting to acknowledge it. You know, this week is going to be the run up to Juneteenth, which a lot of people didn't know about it. President Trump, remember, he didn't even know what Juneteenth was. And that was the fact that it was almost two years a year and a half after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, that the final enslaved people in Texas got word that they were actually free. <laughs> and so that is a celebration. You know, right now, there are many documentaries, really important documentaries being released about the Tulsa massacre and that the centennial of that massacre was only celebrated like last month in May. And a lot of people didn't know about that either because people have not been taught this history of the, not only the brutality of slavery, the Jim Crow system, but about all these hundreds of massacres that occurred all across the country. But in terms of like right now, this struggle over what history will be told, what story will be told is really in the news. There are, just as states are passing these laws against protesters, states are passing laws so that the 1619 Project, this award-winning project from the New York Times that talks about the legacy of slavery, these laws are being passed so that cannot be taught. We have two valedictorians in Mississippi, two black girls, young women, who were selected as the valedictorian and salutatorian at their high school. And because of a protest by white parents, two other white girls were named co-valedictorian, co-salutatorian. Biden's recent attempt to compensate black farmers for decades of discrimination, a Wisconsin judge just issued a temporary restraining order last week, preventing the Biden administration from releasing these long-awaited funds. We have just so many things happening, similar types of laws that either want to deny the history, want to deny any type of repair to the victims of enslavement. So Joe Biden and the rest of these people, you know, have no business talking about enslavement and forced labor. 
Yeah, you know, just to jump in with another one of these examples about why it's so, so ridiculous, so absurd to hear the leaders of the G7 countries talk about democracy and rights and shared values. Uh, you know, over the weekend, it was the anniversary of the Loving decision, the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court decision in 1967. So not a long time ago, 1967, just a little bit over 50 years ago. And the Loving decision struck down bans on interracial marriage in the United States. It was illegal. It was illegal in huge parts of the United States to marry somebody outside of your race. Like that was a written down law that was passed by legislatures and upheld by courts until 1967. And it's just so horrific what happened. So the Loving decision refers to the last name of the couple. It was Mildred and Richard Loving. And in 1958, the police raided their homes, right? The crime they committed of getting married to each other was considered so dangerous that they raided their home in the middle of the night and arrested them. And they were sentenced to one year in prison for marrying each other. And the name of the law that they violated, it's called the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. It was a state law in Virginia, the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. And if that sounds like a Nazi name, you're not that far off because when the Nazis came to power about 10 years later, they actually sent officials to Virginia to study their eugenics program, of which the Racial Integrity Act of 1924 was a key piece of it. So that's what they were sentenced under. Again, 1967. Now that came after the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. I think it's very historically significant, or at least historically notable, that sort of the last formal apartheid law statute practice to be struck down in the United States was the prohibition on interracial marriage, because the first recorded use of the term white, as we understand it today, as like a political category that affords certain like rights and privileges. The first time in the historical record that that has been found was in a law just like the one that the loving couple was prosecuted under. It was passed in 1691. It was called an act for suppressing outlying slaves. It was passed by the Virginia state legislature. Well, at that point, it was the colonial legislature. And they called the idea that an interracial relationship would take place an abominable mixture. And it said that anybody who took part in an interracial relationship was banished from the colony of Virginia. And this is the origin, really, of the concept of white supremacy, that there is this political category that was afforded all of these rights and privileges that were denied to the rest of the population, really the cornerstone of social control for a tiny, wealthy elite in this country. That all came back to a law in 1691 against, you know, what they called miscegenation, interracial relationships. So, I mean, it's such a common thread throughout U.S. history and exposes what a racial white supremacist dictatorship this country actually is, far from being a democracy. And, you know, the other thing that's so maddening is when you talk to apologists for the capitalist white supremacist system, apologists who say, yes, yes, America has problems, but look at all the progress we've made. Look at the great progress we've made. Yes, we had failings in the past. So, okay, Walter, what you're telling us is that there was progress. In just 286 years, the bill, the law outlawing interracial marriage was overcome. So congratulations to the United States and its progress that finally, and only after 20 years of 
intense and massive civil rights protest, was the U.S. able on the federal government level to get rid of a law that made it a criminal act for white people and black people to get married to each other. And in fact, Richard Loving did go to prison after the arrest, and he was in prison prior to the final 1967 Supreme Court ruling. Really something, really something. And you know what? I want to just digress for one more moment. You know, the U.S. is pretending to be, you know, and we're going to talk about Ilan Omar, and if you speak up and speak out against Israel, that shows that you're an anti-Semite, among other things, among other problems that you have. But the United States and white supremacy in the United States was directed first and foremost against the black population, but it was also directed against Jews. It was directed against Jewish people in the United States. And I'm sure some of you know about that story about the German ocean liner called the MS St. Louis that was filled with 900 Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany who set sail in 1939 intending to escape anti-Semitic persecution. When they tried to disembark in Cuba in 1939, the Cuban government then, really a puppet government of the United States, said no. Then the boat set sail for New York City, and the Secretary of State, Hull, told FDR, don't let them in. And the U.S. wouldn't allow the ship to port in New York City or any U.S. port. And then the ship went on to Canada, and Canada said no, too. So these are Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi Germany, and America refused to let them enter the United States because the U.S. was also, as part of its white supremacy against Jews and against Jewish people, and you look at the KKK literature, it's all about that, too. And it's not just the KKK. It was the American bourgeoisie. One quarter of those people finally ended up dead in death camps back in Europe, because finally the ship went back to Europe and different countries took some of the refugees. The UK took a few hundred, then Belgium took some, France took some, but Hitler's armies invaded and conquered Belgium and France in 1940. And it's estimated that 25% of those Jewish people who were refused entry in 1939 into the United States died in German Nazi death camps. So here you have all of these countries. They're racist, they're colonizers, they're anti-Semites. They are the imposters about human rights. You know, Walter, the U.S. ruling class has never been a friend of any minority people. They're pretending to be the great champions of Israel right now, of course, but we could see by the treatment accorded to German Jews who are trying to escape the persecution of the Nazis, how the U.S. ruling class really functioned at the time, what it really thought at the time. It was based on white supremacist anti-Semitic orientation. Let's turn to Israel, because here we are all these years later, and Benjamin Netanyahu is out. But Benjamin Netanyahu's replacement is someone who represents and reflects and espouses the same kind of master-race supremacist ideology that has so typified the ideologues from the United States and Britain. And of course, Britain was the one with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 that decided 
to give Arab lands over to Zionist settlers from Europe. Anyway, let's talk about the new change in Israel and who the new prime minister is. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's certainly nothing to celebrate, even though Benjamin Netanyahu is rightfully such a hated figure. The new prime minister, Neftali Bennett, is to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, for a while he was working with Netanyahu. Then he decided for sort of personal career reasons to break with him. But politically, if anything, he's worse. I mean, for instance, in 2013, during a cabinet discussion on what to do with Palestinians who are taken prisoner by Israel and said to be fighters, Bennett is reported to have said at that cabinet meeting, if we capture terrorists, we need to just kill them. I've already killed a lot of Arabs in my life, and there's no problem with that. He's somebody who openly calls for the expulsion of Palestinians from the West Bank. Of course, that's been Israel's policy forever, but he's somebody who absolutely does not hide that. He uses the euphemism population exchange. He is a close ally of the settlers who live in these illegal settlements in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. I mean, he's about as bad as you can get. And he's going to be the prime minister under this agreement for a little bit over two years. I doubt the government will last that long. But yeah, I mean, this is terrible. And it shows really what Israeli politics, what the Israeli government, what the Israeli state is all about. You know, there's never going to be a government of Israel in its current form that respects the right of the Palestinian people. This idea that there can be a negotiated solution where Israel respects Palestinians' rights and then Palestinians, you know, in this formula, respects Israel's right to exist. I mean, that's just a fantasy when people like Bennett are in charge. And Israeli politics just keeps moving further and further and further to the right. I mean, it is true that there is a party that's supported by Palestinian citizens of Israel involved in this coalition, but that move and the leader who made that agreement has been condemned by basically every other Palestinian political organization that there is. So this is another right-wing government, right-wing, far, far right-wing prime minister that might actually be just a transitional government, might not last very long. They could just get rid of the personality of Netanyahu and then be replaced by one that's, you know, believe it or not, even further to the right. That's an entirely possible outcome. So yeah, very important, I think, for the solidarity movement with the Palestinian people to continue because the aggression from the Israeli government is poised to just continue or intensify. Esther, the wealthiest democracies, as they call themselves at the G7, aren't so democratic to people in the United States who have a different point of view, even a mildly expressed point of view when it comes to the state of Israel or to American foreign policy and some of its criminal conduct. I'm speaking, of course, in terms of what happened to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar this week. Let's talk about that. Right. So despite Israel putting fascists like Bennett into power, these American politicians are pretending to ignore or discount Israel's rightward march that we're talking about. You know, it's ongoing murders and imprisonment of Palestinian men, women and children, occupation and ethnic cleansing of Palestinian neighborhoods, just like they pretend to ignore or try to obscure Israel being an apartheid state and Israel's war crimes. So this pretend world of politicians, including of liberals like Nancy Pelosi, was allowed to stand pretty much unchallenged until the most recent global uprising in support of the Palestinian struggle that Walter mentioned. And during this struggle, we remember, you know, Israel killed more than 250 people in Gaza, including 66 children. And more people 
all over the world begin to know and understand that the Palestinian struggle is a human rights struggle for liberation and a struggle against the seven decades of ethnic cleansing and brutal settler colonialism and kind of a normalized genocide happening against them. So in the aftermath of the ceasefire and increased activism and the boycott divestment sanctions movement that we talked about last week with the block the boat action at the Oakland port. Um, I think this pretend world of politicians really had to face reality when Ilhan Omar spoke to the foreign affairs committee, I think last week to secretary of state, Antony Blinken. So it all started when Omar had the temerity to state while questioning Blinken at the hearing that all governments, organizations, and individuals must be held to the same standard of accountability and that Israel is being investigated for war crimes, as is Hamas, as is the United States and the Taliban. All are being investigated for war crimes, right? So she tweeted afterward about the hearing saying, quote, we must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. She asked, she mentioned that she asked Secretary of State Blinken where people are supposed to go to for justice if the U.S. doesn't support investigations by the ICC, the International Criminal Court which is probing these alleged war crimes that I just mentioned, right? So here is Omar, a little piece of Omar speaking at the hearing. Uh, I know you oppose the court's investigation in both um, Palestine and in Afghanistan. I haven't seen any evidence in either cases that domestic courts can, uh, both can and will prosecute alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I would emphasize that in Israel and Palestine, uh, this includes crimes committed by both the Israeli security forces and Hamas. In Afghanistan, it includes crimes committed by the Af Afghan national government and the Taliban. So without speaking to Omar directly about her remarks, as she asked them to, because she got wind that there was some criticism of her remarks at the hearing kind of brewing in Congress. Uh, Twelve Democrats in the House attacked her comments two days later in a joint statement accusing her of placing the U.S. and Israel in the same category as Hamas and the Taliban and giving cover to terrorist groups and harboring deep-seated prejudice. So in response to the attack on her from these fellow House Democrats, Omar released a statement and also tweeted, pointing out that Citing an open case against Israel, the U.S., Hamas, and the Taliban in the ICC isn't comparison or from deeply seated prejudice. She added that, quote, you might try to undermine these investigations or deny justice to their victims, but history has taught us that the truth can't be hidden or silenced forever. So she did issue a second official statement clarifying again, and this is her quote, the conversation was about accountability for specific incidents regarding those ICC cases, not a moral comparison between Hamas and the Taliban and the U.S. and Israel. I was in no way equating terrorist organizations with democratic countries with well-established judicial systems. Well, of course, after that second statement, some on the left did take exception to her comments, especially since she pointed out 
herself that Israel's so-called court is not fair to Palestinians, is not a uh, well-established and you know a judicial system for all people. But nonetheless, progressives in and out of government have rallied to her defense, pointing out U.S. war crimes, for example, in Iraq, the million to two million people killed there, pointing out Vietnam, pointing out Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and you know the list goes on. If not now, a progressive Jewish organization said Thursday that the House Democrats are, quote, using Islamic tropes to smear Ilhan Omar and that these kind of comments do not represent the American Jewish community. They tweeted that these politicians are more interested in protecting Israeli occupation and apartheid than working towards Jewish safety and equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. Edward Ahmed Mitchell, National Deputy Director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, said Representative Omar stated an indisputable fact. Various actors in the Middle East, including our own government, have committed atrocities and should face accountability for their conduct in the appropriate international forums. There is nothing prejudiced about this observation. But in this pretend world, you know, adopted by right wing media and liberal media, these facts are inconvenient, as is the fact that Ilhan Omar is targeted for death threats by racist Islamophobes and fascists, you know, every time she speaks out on human rights. In addition to the statement by these 12 Democrats, you know, the House so-called leadership, including Nancy Pelosi, they put out a statement also asking her to clarify her statements. And then, you know, I think after that in a tweet, she said, you know, these are the same people who want to come to me and ask for my support for their legislation, but they want to basically stab me in the back and come out with these kinds of statements when they know that what they are accusing me of is not what I did. I did not come out to do whatever they're saying, you know, that I'm talking about ICC war crimes being investigated. And I think that even though she appeared to backtrack on her statement somewhat, she stuck to the point of war crimes. And that's really the the main international issue. And that's what we have to support Ilhan Omar on and anyone else who wants to raise this vital human rights issue. That's so important. And, and you know, it's so sad that people who are trying to speak out within the the halls of Congress, the little, small, tiny handful of them, like AOC or Ilan Omar, because they're in the Democratic Party and because the U.S. doesn't have a parliamentary system, we just have this two-party dictatorship. If you want to be in one of the two ruling class parties and you speak out against like a consensus position of imperialism like unstinting support for Israel and every war crime that it commits. If you do that, then you get royally attacked. Then you have to back up. You have to clarify. You have to make it clear you're not uh, declaring an equivalency between the great democracies like the United States and Israel and terrorist organizations, presumably Hamas. It's really sad, but that's the way the American political system is constructed. That's why it's actually not a democracy at all. It's just a pretend democracy. If you had a real examination and you look at what Hamas has done from a military point of view, Hamas, it's a movement and it's also a government. It's a government in Gaza. 70% of the population of Gaza are refugees from other places in historic Palestine. They've already been driven from their home into Gaza. You know, people describe it as an open air prison because you can't leave. Israel controls the skies, they control the sea, they control the borders. 
it's an open-air prison. And then you look at what the U.S. and Israel have done. Hamas has fired missiles at Israel, the government that has helped evict the people from their homes, driving them to Gaza. But the U.S. and Israel have bombed Syria. They've bombed Lebanon, invaded Lebanon, bombed Iraq, invaded Iraq, bombed Yemen, bombed Libya, destroyed the Libyan government, bombed and invaded Afghanistan. And as you mentioned, Esther, earlier, Vietnam, Korea. I mean, there is actually no equivalency because whether one likes the religious or the political views of Hamas, that aside, just using an objective standard, the objective standard of what has the United States and what has Israel done from the point of view of military aggression against people in the region and elsewhere compared to those who they are targeting as the real oppressors and aggressors and the real terrorists, which in this case would be Hamas, there is no comparison. If you use an objective criteria, you can't but come to the conclusion that the biggest terrorist in the world is actually in the United States, meaning it's in the Pentagon and the CIA and the policies that it pursues. Anyway, let's go on to another story. We're talking about violence in the Middle East. We're talking about the employment of violence by colonial powers. Let's just talk for a moment about the violence at home on another front. There have been so many mass shootings, six over the weekend, but I think something like more than 270 so far this year. Let's just talk about that real quick. Yeah, well, this was an especially bloody weekend over the course of just six hours over the weekend. So this was Friday night and into Sunday morning. There are four mass shootings across the United States that killed six people and wounded 38, including children. These mass shootings took place in Austin, in Cleveland, Chicago, and Savannah. So this is of course, particularly horrific because it happened, you know, in such quick succession. But it's also, you know, like you were pointing out, Brian, completely normal. This is something that happens essentially every day in the United States, a mass shooting. And this is the only country where that happens. I mean, in no other place is mass death just so, so completely accepted and normalized as part of just, you know, everyday life. And it's also, I think, important to point out that perhaps no other country also invest so much money into their police forces as the United States. I mean, so much military style gear, military style training, you know, the most top of the line deadly weapons, hundreds of thousands of personnel across the country, you know, this enormous police force, and yet they're completely incapable from solving this most basic public safety problem. I mean, it says so much about the system on every level, including just the culture of violence that's been developed over centuries in a society like the United States that rose to the top of the international stage by employing the most unspeakable, brutal violence that you can imagine. So there's so many different layers to this, and it manifests itself in these horrific mass shootings that take place on a regular basis. Another part of the story about violence at home is that the police are killing people at about the same rate that they were killing people, especially and disproportionately black people and Latino people in the United States before George Floyd was killed. I'm looking at Time Magazine, Esther. This came out a few weeks ago. 
In the weeks after George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer last May, the insistence that his death would be, must be, the last such killing at the hands of law enforcement became a popular refrain. Quote, I think what's happened here is one of those great inflection points in American history for real in terms of civil liberties, civil rights, and just treating people with dignity. Joe Biden, then still a candidate for president, told CBS News. And then Republican pollster Frank Luntz declared, quote, we are a different country today than just 30 days ago. But in fact, the police, Esther, are killing people all the time, disproportionately black people. In the last year, among the many, many hundreds, perhaps it's almost a thousand who were killed, about 30% of the deaths at the hands of the police were black people, even though black people only constitute 13% of the population. But it's not just that things are going on. There's also a shielding of the police, especially federal police agencies who are sort of out of the limelight. Right. And here in D.C., of course, they're not out of the limelight because we are in a region where you have all of these federal agencies and so many of them have their own police departments. And the Washington Post published a story recently talking about how so many of these laws that have been passed to make local police accountable, state police accountable, are not applicable to federal police. That, for example, federal police are shielded from accountability no matter what crime they commit. So some of the pieces to that include the fact that federal police don't typically identify members who shoot and kill people. In the case of Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, we found out who Derek Chauvin was. We found out who the other three police officers were who were on the scene and they're going to go on trial this month. They don't have to wear body cameras. They don't have to hold a news conference to basically tell the public what happened. So, so many families are left with no answers about what happened to their loved one. We had a case when we talked about the two young men killed by the Pentagon police officer earlier this year. That was a very bloody week or two weeks here in the district. We had a man chased into the district, I believe, by federal police, and he was tased. The family doesn't know how many times, and he died. So this is a problem, especially here in D.C. One of the first stories I think I did on the show, we were talking about an FBI agent who shot and killed a man on the metro, which is like our subway. If you can imagine just being on the subway with people all around, people who could have been injured, shooting a man, and he's been charged with murder now. So it's very important to have federal police come under the same systems of accountability that other police are. You know, when you have Biden and all these other people meeting, they want to demonize China. They want to demonize Russia. They want to talk about, you know, the former Soviet Union, talk about secret police. And they want to talk about these places as authoritarian places where police forces aren't held accountable. But in Israel, you see the IDF is not held accountable for how they treat Palestinians. And here in this United States, the place of the so-called democracy, you have police who, to me, if you ask me, these are secret police, okay? If they can kill you, they don't have to say what happened. They don't have to give the news conference. They don't face any charges. That means that, you know, 
you have people who can just kill at will. And this is even worse than having qualified immunity. This is even worse than that because there's just no information that they have to give at all. Let's turn before we go to our last story, which is a roundup of the Liberation News stories from the Liberation News newsletter, which Walter's going to do. Nicole, I want to turn to you for one quick final one minute before we do that, which is, you know, the United States just hit the 600,000 dead mark, and it may be a lot more people who have died from COVID in the last year. And then I'm looking at what happened in China. They had China had one case of COVID in Guangzhou province four weeks ago. So the government tested 28 million people in 12 days. And some new cases were detected. They found 119 asymptomatic people. Those people were quarantined. All of their expenses were paid for by the government. And I'm thinking like, okay, China's had like 4,000 deaths or maybe a little bit more, maybe 5,000. The U.S., in spite of being you know, way richer than China, the per capita income in China, it's about one-tenth still of what it is for people in the United States. It's a much poorer country still. But they managed COVID such that less than 5,000 people died. 600,000 Americans died. We don't know how many more will die. And yet you have Biden over there in the UK at the G7 or at Brussels thumping their chest. We are the wealthiest democracies. We're wonderful. We're going to lecture China and others. We're going to tell them what they should do. I mean, instead of that, there could be the idea that perhaps people in the United States or even the government in the United States might have something to learn from China instead of being on a perpetual war plan with China and confrontation at all levels. You could have cooperation. But again, we're noticing that. We're saying that you don't hear those voices at all in the corporate media. Anyway, 600,000 dead in the United States. Right. One of the pieces of the joint statement of the G7 this past weekend was you know, about really targeting China for their non-participation in the market economy. And when you think about it, it's the fact that they have, you know, some components of a planned economy that makes it possible to test that many people, that makes it possible to actually make sure that people get healthcare, that they get what they need, that they're able to, you know, get the vital nutrients and you know, water and the things that they need during a lockdown, unlike the United States, where that didn't really happen. The lockdown didn't even happen in a, in a way that, you know, we needed it to happen. So, of course, we're here, you know, at this place in the pandemic where things are opening back up in the United States because the United States has hoarded vaccines and has been able to give, I believe, almost 70 percent now of the United States population has at least one vaccine shot. But the United States has 600,000 deaths, at least. And again, China is at 4,800 deaths. I mean, China is a much bigger population than the United States. The United States just has this gargantuan number of deaths, and yet it's the wealthiest place in the world. I mean, this is so stark. It's so stark. And, you know, we don't know how a different president would have handled the majority of the coronavirus pandemic and massive crisis that we saw. But we do know that there has been a huge, huge disinvestment in the healthcare system. It's been completely striated by class. And that, you know, while there was a lot more that Donald Trump could have done, 
it really would take actually, like you said, Brian, learning some things from the way China handled things, from the way Vietnam handled things, you know, it really would have taken some actual learning and changes on the behalf of the United States government to really make a dent in what happened. And as it is now, we're sitting here with 600,000 people, at least their friends, their family, their relatives, their colleagues, their neighbors, you know, all dealing with this mass death that we've had as a nation. Right. It's the failure of capitalism. If China could do it, and it's a lot poorer than the United States, the U.S. could have done it too. The problem is system failure. And the system has a name. The system is capitalism. That's why we have the socialist program. We don't want to simply talk about the news. We want to be able to build a movement for a new system. And we believe it's possible. We believe it's a necessity. We believe it will happen. But part of it is telling the truth about capitalism. And so, Walter, you are the editor of Liberation News, a socialist website. I want to talk about the big stories. Some of them are truly outlandish that are in the Liberation News newsletter. Let's begin. Yeah, so you can sign up for our newsletter. Go to liberationnews.org. You'll see the button at the top. There's two Jeff Bezos stories that I want to point out for our listeners today. One is titled IRS Leak, Which Billionaires Paid Zero in Taxes? And that's true. There were several billionaires, including Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and George Soros, who did not pay any federal taxes on several different occasions, in fact. We know this because there was somebody who who I consider to be very brave and heroic who worked at the IRS who leaked this information to the public. And outrageously, the Department of Justice is now trying to find who this whistleblower is and prosecute them for violating the billionaire's privacy, not going after the billionaire's for contributing nothing of their vast wealth in tax revenue to the U.S. government, which hopefully could be used to pay for things that are actually useful to people like education or housing or healthcare facilities. Um, There is another story also about Jeff Bezos titled Bezos Blasts Off, Money, War, and the New Space Race. We talked about it a little bit on last week's show, but Bezos is going to space. He owns a space exploration company called Blue Origin. It's kind of like the main rival to Elon Musk's SpaceX. And, you know, the story itself, it's kind of silly. It's ridiculous. It's this outrageous display of wealth by the wealthiest person maybe ever. But also the fact that there is this major space corporation called Blue Origin, one of many major space corporations, actually points to some very serious and troubling things about the militarization of space and how space is being turned over to giant corporations in the interest of private profit. And then finally, I want to recommend an article titled Cory Bush's Public Power Resolution Echoes Community Demands. This is about a resolution that would take some of the dramatic action necessary to save the planet from catastrophic climate change. These are proposals that have been pushed by the environmental movement for a long time. You can check out the details in the article. And it's written by Tina Landis, who is a frequent contributor to Liberation News. She has a new book out called Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Check that out. Go to store.pslweb.org. Highly recommend that book by Tina Landis, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. And sign up for our newsletter. Again, liberationnews.org, top of the page. It just occurred to me, Walter, that Jeff Bezos is now worth $190 billion. If he gets a 10% return on his investment, 
that would be another 19 billion per year. So if, for instance, Jeff Bezos under the current capitalist system were to stay in orbit for the next year, he would still have presumably $19 billion more as part of his portfolio. Anyway, we're going to wrap up the socialist program. We'll be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf. We're going to talk with Richard as we have been about basic Marxist concepts. We're going to be focused tomorrow on the origin and development of the capitalist state. Stay with us on the socialist program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.